Greetings, sisters and brothers in aging, sickness, and death. (laughs) I heard somewhere that that's a traditional way Dharma talks are begun in some Buddhist countries in Thailand. And I've always wanted to do it. I thought it would be (laughs) such an uplifting opening line. (laughs) We Buddhists really know how to have a good time. (laughs) So I I did it. I've been wanting to do that for years. (laughs) So yes, greetings, sisters and brothers in aging, sickness, and death. I think most of you, most of us here in the hall are have some familiarity with the kind of legendary story of the, uh, the Buddha's life before he, uh, when he was still Prince Siddhartha and growing up in the palace. And there's a story that's uh, kind of, yeah, more in the sort of legendary style of the four heavenly messengers and the Buddha, uh, Buddha-to-be, the prince <clears throat> venturing out in this uh, story and from a very sheltered, uh, protected and very pleasant life in these uh, in the uh, fairly opulent kind of situation he grew up in, seeing um, an old person, an ill person, a sick person, a corpse, and then uh, a renunciate, a wandering spiritual seeker. And these were seen as uh, messengers that led him to question his life and sort of the meaning of you know, brought him face to face with some fundamental existential questions that he'd been really sheltered from up to that time, it said. And in the suttas, it's, it's spoken about as, as four thoughts that he had. He said that when he reflected on the fact that, like others, he was also subject to aging, to having times of sickness, and eventually to dying, he said uh, in his reflection, he said, the vanities of youth, of health, of life left him. So they left me then. And he had this realization he wasn't going to live forever, wasn't always going to be healthy. And so this contemplating these, these really basic questions about life was led him to undertake, that was his inspiration to undertake this spiritual quest of, many years leading to his realization and all the teaching that followed on from that. You know, this, what's the point if you're just going to get old and get sick at times and then eventually die? What's, what's, it up, what's up with that? You know, what's the point then? Is there more to life than just this seemingly not very uh, good looking, not a good prognosis there? <laughs> And we don't like to think about these subjects as a general rule very much. And there's a lot of conditioning that most of us have uh, come up with and, and encountered in our lives to avoid thinking about these things. And we see, you know, life is happening now and we see aging and all the rest of that down, happening somewhere down the road, hopefully down at the end of a really long road and we'll deal with it then. And we have in in this country especially, and I'll speak about that because this is where I live and where I've grown up, there's this um, 
there's this kind of glorification of youth and youthfulness that's uh, gone kind of wild in the culture here. And, um, you know, youth and youthfulness is put on a pedestal. It's something that is, is um, almost as though one is not supposed to get old, as though getting old is, is a reflection of either personal failure or, or at least really bad taste. <laughs> and... And, you know, there's this huge industry that caters to looking this way and this kind of cult of youth and um, a lot of money wrapped up in that and all the advertising. There's all these creams and lotions and, and elixirs that are supposed to promising us, you know, eternal youth or something kind of like that and, you know, cosmetic surgeries, all this stuff trying to convince us that somehow aging is optional. And you know, some of them, they're probably good stuff out there, but it doesn't really work, <laughs> maybe a little bit for a while. And it's not to say that we shouldn't take care of ourselves and it doesn't, nothing wrong with trying to look our best and, and all the rest of that, that's not what it's about. And trying to, to stay healthy also, it just makes sense to do what we can to be healthy. And, it's an incredible blessing to have good health and anyone who has struggled with their health knows this all too well. What a blessing it is to have good health. But, you know, to, to live as though somehow this aging is, is optional or avoidable shows an impressive capacity for denial, which of course we have taken to great heights here in, in the United States. Denial on all kinds of levels is a specialty here. And so then, yeah, if growing old is evidence of personal failure, then, then dying is the ultimate example of, <laughs> of blowing it, of, of a personal failure. And, you know, it's, it's the ultimate in bad taste <laughs> to do that. And, you know, we hide it away. We sanitize it in these special funeral parlors and make the corpses look alive and, you know, better than they looked when they were, actually were alive and, you know, so that they just look like they're kind of taking a nap in there. <laughs> you know, and we treat, we treat death as something that there, there's, there might be a cure for it. And I, someone gave me this magazine. It was a Time magazine. The cover was from about two or three years ago. And the, 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 um, Big headline there is, can Google solve death? <laughs> you know, we turn to Google for everything else. So, you know, and this, I guess it was, they were serious asking, you know, the whole article was about something to do with that. It's just, it's pretty impressive. You know, so many of you, when you come in, uh, often when we meet in, in the individual meetings and people have many times have spoken about how much they, how, how lo lovely it is to have the woods here and how much th uh, people enjoy walking, spending time walking in the woods and find that to be, uh, you know, it's such a great support to us here to have the beautiful surroundings and have nature so, so close and, and the beauty there. And if we take a walk in the woods, we see uh, plants, trees, and uh, all kinds of plants in every stage of life. You know, little ones, baby ones that are sprouting and 
growing saplings and mature trees and aging trees that are losing their vitality and trees that have died and new ones coming up through that. And it's this beautiful cycle of life and death and new life. And it seems so beautiful there and we delight in it and find it healing to spend time in nature in this way. And there's, there's a lot that we, we draw from that and it feels so right to us. There's harmony in the sense of balance in these changes and the stages we see there. But then when it comes to, to ourselves, we take ourselves out of that. We, it's not right, you know, it's a problem. We don't make a problem of it out in the woods. It's fine, it's beautiful, we love it. But it's not right when we comes to our own body. It's, it's some kind of mistake and we should have been able to avoid it when we notice we're aging. We don't want to see that we're the same. The body is the same as all of nature. This is a quotation from Ajahn Chah. Trees, mountains, and vines, they all live according to their own truth. They appear and die following their nature and they remain impassive. But not we people, we make a fuss over everything. Yet this body just follows its own nature. It's born, it grows old, and eventually it dies. It follows nature in this way. Whoever wishes it to be otherwise will just suffer. And this this fear of aging and death is maybe subtle, but it's very pervasive in so many of our minds and hearts. And we, we try to avoid looking at it or thinking about it. That's our usual strategy there. We focus our energy on getting and having stuff and acquiring possessions and experiences and everything we, we get because that's, that's what we're offered as a strategy for being happy so much and all the things that we, we get and then we can show and as sort of who we are, they enhance the sense of who we, who we are. And, this, and, the, and this, this energy, this constant movement can, can keep us, you know, this momentum, it keeps us from having to look at a lot of things and it can shield us from really facing these fundamental truths of life. But the reality is that, that we're all heading, if we, if we get born, that's the direction we're going it's toward aging, probably sickness at some point, and death is, is there. It's a natural, inevitable part of life, and it's this true aging true for the everyone, including the Buddha. And there's a beautiful sutta, I'd like to read part of it. It's uh, the Jara Sutta. Jara is the Pali word for aging, sutta on aging. I have heard that on one occasion the Blessed One was staying near Savati in the Eastern Monastery at the palace of Migara's mother. Now on that occasion, the Blessed One, on emerging from seclusion in the late afternoon, sat warming his back in the western sun. And then the Venerable Ananda went to the Blessed One, and on arrival, having bowed down to the Blessed One, massaged the Blessed One's limbs with his hand and said, It's amazing, Lord, it's astounding how the Blessed One's complexion is no longer so clear and bright. His limbs are flabby and wrinkled, his back bent forward, and there's a discernible change in the faculties, the faculty of the eye, the faculty of the ear, of the nose, of the tongue, and of the body. That's the way it is, Ananda. When young, one is subject to aging. When healthy, subject to illness. 
when alive, subject to death. The complexion is no longer so clear and bright. The limbs are flabby and wrinkled. <laughs> the back is bent forward and there is a discernible change in the faculties, in the faculty of the eye, of the ear, of the nose, the tongue, and of the body. I just love this, this sutta. Not often in the suttas do we get this sense of the Buddha as an actual living person there and the kindly Ananda. Ananda was always such a kind being, giving him a back rub. Blessed one, dude, look what happened. <laughs> and we got old. <laughs> and you know, death, when death comes, it's going to take everything, all our acquisitions, everything we've managed to get a hold of, including whatever sense of self we've managed to create. It's, we're going to have to lay it all down, let it all go at least by then, if we haven't done it before then. And in a very real way, death is not waiting for us down at the end of a road, it's walking along with us, it's our constant companion in this life. This is, uh, some, this is a part, uh, <coughs> an excerpt from The Teachings of Don Juan by Carlos Castaneda, and this is, uh, this is something that I read when the first book came out, the book came out in the late 60s, early 70s, I guess it was around 1970. Death is our eternal companion and it is always to our left at an arm's length. An immense amount of pettiness is dropped if your death makes a gesture to you or if you catch a glimpse of it or if you just have the feeling that your, your companion is there watching you. The issue of our death is never pressed far enough. Death is the only wise advisor that we have. Your death will tell you that nothing really matters outside its touch. One of us here has to change and change fast. One of us here has to learn that death is the hunter and that it's always to one's left. One of us here has to ask death's advice and drop the cursed pettiness that belongs to those that live their lives as if death will never tap them. Think of your death now. It is at an arm's length. It may tap you at any moment, so you really have no time for crappy thoughts and moods. None of us have time for that. That's pretty strong. Strong language there. But it points to something that's really important, is that there, we don't have any idea how much longer we'll live. There are no guarantees, not even the next breath. It's not guaranteed. I read a, uh, an article once, uh, was uh, talking about a reflection that um, came from the teacher Stephen Batchelor he said one should sit and reflect that death alone is certain. The time of death is not certain. Given this, what should I do? Given this truth, what, what do I do? Asking this question. In recent uh, year or two, Joseph Goldstein has been offering a, a kind of a suggestion for how one might practice practicing with the, the understanding 
that this could be one's last breath or one's last crappy mood, one's last aversive mind state, one's last joyful mind state, whatever it was. If it was the last one, you'd show up for it. We'd want to be there. And if we were mindful, it wouldn't matter what it was. It could be really sweet or not. But we can actually right now, with this next breath, we can hold it with that tenderness and care and that realization, what if this was the last one? I have come over years to really regard uh, the practice in, in one way at least. I see it as, as a real, as a preparation for dying and death, for that time that is inevitably going to be part of our experience. It's the one really interesting thing that we're all guaranteed to have that experience at some time. And I'm really interested in trying to be present for that. And I think that there's also possibly an incredible opportunity at that moment, because letting go is gonna happen. I found a, a poem from a, one of the Zen masters. Sometimes they write such beautiful poems. And this was uh, Kozan Ichikyo. And uh, on the morning of his death, at age 77, this was in the year uh, 1360. He's said to have uh, written down this poem I'm going to read, laid down his brush and died sitting up in meditation shortly after. Empty handed I entered this world, barefoot I leave it. My coming, my going, two simple happenings that got entangled. Such a succinct and beautiful way of expressing these sentiment. Two simple happenings that got entangled. This possibility to be that um, empty, light, and uh, present at that time in one's life. I remember uh, someone, I, I can't remember who it was, this is a long time ago, uh, who had been living as a monk, I believe, in Thailand, and said that there was a very old monk, very well-practiced old monk, and he was getting near the very near the end of his life, and he 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 brought this other this person who was telling the story, who was a monk at that time, and had him come and stay, and actually I think come and lie down with him, and he described as his as the faculties began to uh, shut down, he was so mindful he could say, oh now, this is. I'm seeing the eyesight is dimming and, and, you know, he could describe the process of dying. <laughs> Can you imagine that degree of equanimity and mindfulness? It's a possibility. You know, the Buddha taught that it's all of our attachments, and this energy of grasping, of clinging in the mind and heart, everything we hold on to, including whatever sense of self we might have, that is the cause of suffering. And if we live with the understanding that eventually we're going to be parted from all of that, 
anything we might hold on to, including our sense of self, we may be able to start letting go of it now and it could save us from a lot of suffering down the road. And this is from one of the teachings in the uh, suttas. There are five facts or bhikkhus which ought to be often contemplated upon by everyone, whether woman or man, householder, or one gone forth as a nun or monk. What five? I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. I am subject to illness. I have not gone beyond illness. I am subject to death. I have not gone beyond death. I will grow different and be separated and parted from all that is dear and beloved to me. I am the owner of my actions, heir to my actions, born of my actions, and live dependent on my actions. Whatever actions I may do, for good or for ill, to that I will fall heir. Another one of those really cheery lists. Our heart might not leap up when we hear this recommendation to frequently <laughs> reflect on these. Is your heart leaping up, anyone? Any leaping hearts out there? I hope so. You know, we know, yeah, we're, I'm going to get old and probably have times of sickness and I know I'm going to die. And, you know, we know you can't take it with you. But, we, you know, why would we want to bring this to mind or dwell on what seem like dreary subjects or... You know, shouldn't we focus on enjoying life while we can? And these contemplations, they hit close to home and they may, we may think life's hard enough without dwelling on morbid thoughts. Could be a response when we hear this list. And there are, of course, times when these contemplations might not be appropriate. There could be circumstances in our lives when it's not a suitable time. It's not always suitable. That's possible. It might be something that one should look at. But if they're held skillfully and, and the reflection is done in a careful way, in a skillful way, it can be a very powerful tool in our lives and in our meditation practice. If we're young, we can fear that these contemplations will somehow be robbing us of someone. We can say, oh, it's, it's okay for an old guy like Greg. You know, we feel like our whole life is there before us and all of its possibilities and, you know, as though something will be taken from us if we, if we start thinking in this way. We'll be robbing ourselves of something uh, all the future seems to be holding there for us. But the point of these contemplations is not to make us feel bad or powerless or resigned to our fate. And although we sometimes fear that, that reflections like this could be depressing, we often find that actually the opposite is true. That they're, they're not, that doesn't, not the effect it has on the mind, on the heart at all. And if we're living with an unacknowledged, maybe totally unexamined fear of aging, sickness and death, if we bring these things to the surface in a careful way, in a gentle way, in a skillful way, we may find it has a, uh, an incredible effect on on how we live our lives it can um, you know under the right circumstances done in the right way it can we can start to undo our conditioning around these things and we feel lighter and greater ease more spaciousness 
they don't weigh so heavy. We start to actually let these things go. And a great, one of the great teachers in Thailand, Ajahn Lee Damadaro said this, aging, illness, and death are treasures for those who understand them. They're noble truths, noble treasures. If they were people, I'd bow down to their feet every day. That's a different kind of attitude than we might find broadly around in this culture at least. But these reflections, they let us take a stand on reality, you could say. They, we stand on the truth of things, on the truth of the way it is. And, and they can awaken in us also a sense of the preciousness of life. You know, as I've gotten older, I've been noticing it this fall so much, how quickly the passage of time, how quickly it seems to have sped up. I remember how summer vacation when I was a kid, it just lasted forever. Our school year lasted longer. (laughs) But the years pass by so quickly. Where did the past weeks go? And of course, the perception of time is not fixed. And you know, as we've said, an hour in meditation can feel like an eternity. And then a year goes by and it just seems like that. This is from a Native American crow uh, warrior, crowfoot. He was a Blackfoot uh, warrior chief. He said, a little while and I will be gone from among you. When, I cannot tell. From nowhere we came and into nowhere we go. What is life? It is the flash of a firefly in the night. It is the breath of a buffalo in the wintertime. It is the little shadow which runs across the grass and loses itself in the sunset. This pointing to the the incredibly fleeting and fragile nature of life, but the beauty in, in that, the poignance in that. You know, if we really open to our own own mortality in this way directly, it connects us to this beauty and fragility, the brevity of life, but not in a morbid way. I don't think it's morbid at all, but it can awaken in us in the sense of a kind of, uh, a skillful kind of uh, wholesome urgency where we wanna make the best use of our time. We We can look at our life and ask the question, that question I posed earlier from Stephen Batchelor, death is certain, the time of death is not certain, what should I do? What then shall I do? And I think all of us here have some connection to this or we wouldn't have come to this retreat and we wouldn't still be here, you know. No one made us come. There are a lot of other ways we could choose to spend these weeks. We have some sense of, of making good use of our time. We've looked at, at life and, and asked the question, what is worth doing with my life? What's worth doing with my time? But it can be worth asking that question, even at times on retreat. How am I spending my days? There's a practice based, I think it's based on a book, it's called One Year to Live. Some of you might be familiar with it. I think it's a book by Stephen Levine. And sometimes I know I've, I've asked myself, what would I do? 
How would I live my life if I knew I had only one year? And sometimes I've, I've even noticed, you know, this is not new. I've done this for a long time. And sometimes I've, I've almost wished it were true. It might be true. We'll check next year and see if I'm still around. Might not be. <laughs> check it out. <laughs> but sometimes I'd look at my life and how I'm living and I'd feel, oh, it's okay, it's good. I wouldn't necessarily change anything and sometimes I really have to ask myself, what are you doing, Greg? What are you doing here? So we might bring one or more of these contemplations uh, to mind on a reflection. Some people uh, keep a list and, and read them and reflect on them daily. Like the reflection on aging. I am subject to aging. I have not gone beyond aging. That's the first of these. You know, and of course we know we're getting older and at least intellectually we're, we'll say, yeah, if anyone asks us the question, are you aging? Yep, we'll say yes. But are we really willing to sit with that and let it in there, let it into our bones, you could say? I mean, it puts us directly in touch with the truth of impermanence, which is so key in this practice to actually touch that directly. You know, and we might be fine with contemplating impermanence in kind of a more abstract way, or maybe out in the beauty of the woods. We love it to see it there. The leaves, so glorious. I was walking back after lunch, and it was just like someone had created this unbelievable mosaic of the colored leaves on the ground, the beauty. So fantastic this time of year. But when it comes to ourselves, we don't see it. It doesn't look so beautiful. We don't like to see it. We don't like to see the body aging and changing, you know. Look in the mirror and there's gray hair coming. In my case, this daily expanding forehead. <laughs> my hair getting thinner, you know. And I remember it's now some years ago, you know, getting my hair cut and the barber gives you the mirror to look in, you know, so you can see how it looks in back and, oh no. <laughs> and for so long telling myself, oh, it's just a cowlick. You know, it's not really getting bald back there, you know, because from the front I can't see it, you know. Oh, it's always been like that, it's just a cowlick. No. <laughs> Sorry, that's not true. You know, and we want to exempt ourselves from this truth of change. You know, you start getting called sir or ma'am. I have a friend, one of my oldest friends, his sister said she'd come back from being out on a doing something and she'd say, I just got mammed. <laughs> she was, you know, I don't know what, in her 40s or something. Oh man, I got mammed out there. <laughs> I've told this story before, but it's a good one. I was visiting one of my friends who used to be one of my business partners when I was living and working in San Francisco. And she's much younger and has, um, has young kids. And this was a few years ago and they were still, you know, kind of preschool or kindergarten age, four or five. And I went for a visit and, um, you know, I ring the doorbell and the, I see the curtain come aside and this little face look out and then this voice calling, Mom, there's an old man at the door. <laughs> 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 you know, it's so funny, but 
I, I would hurt. I didn't want to be an old man at the door. <laughs> you know, and this is like a five-year-old little girl. Anyone over 15 is old when you're that age. But, you know, the old man at the door is like, oh, God. <laughs> it was so surprising to me how that landed. I was not happy. <laughs> I didn't, I can laugh now, but I wasn't laughing. Well, I was, but still. You know, or I go to the grocery stores now and very regularly, can I help you out with your groceries? <laughs> you know? And maybe they're told to ask those questions, but no, thank you, I'll, I'm just fine. <laughs> you know, and we notice our self-image is suffering with these things that happen. <laughs> and I try to take care of myself, you know, and I ride my bike and try to exercise and watch my diet to some extent and... So I, I decided, okay, I'm okay. I'm, I'm okay with being a middle-aged man. And um, as long as I can be kind of a youthful one. <laughs> but then I was giving, I was talking about this uh, last year. Okay, I turned 60 at the end of June this year. And I was talking about this sometime last year, um, prior to my 60th birthday. And, and uh, one of my colleagues said, I hate to tell you this, Greg, but someone just told me who's in the health healthcare professions just told me that um, 60 is geriatric. <laughs> Technically geriatric <laughs> when you hit 60. So, you know, now I have to be geriatric on top, <laughs> on top of, uh, you know, I just was, I just got down with middle age and, you know, I'm, I'm geriatric now <laughs> since, uh, since June, the late end of June. It's just so sad. It's, you know, it's, it's a tragic, really. <laughs> you know, and the self-images that we created, they're inherently problematic, you know, because they take so much energy and, and they take a lot of maintenance, you know, and then we use them to feel good about ourselves, but they can take a lot of time and money keeping them intact. And then something happens, you know, we get mammed or we, someone offers to, carry our groceries out or offers us their seat on the bus. How about that? That's been happening too. No, that's my job. I offer my seat. I don't get offered. You know, and so if the self-image is out of date, what are we going to do? You know, so the usual strategy is we adjust it like me getting, I haven't, I adjusted it to be middle-aged, but I haven't adjusted it to be geriatric. That's that one I haven't quite, <laughs> not quite down with that. But of course, you know, our practice is about going beyond all the images. It's not about getting good at adjusting our self-image. Connecting with what's real, what's actually real right now in this moment. And you know, it's good to, it's, there's some wisdom perhaps in thinking about our, our aging and to plan for it in, in ways. There may be some value to fears and worries we, we might find in the mind and the heart in this regard, but, but fear and suffering don't necessarily have to be part of the equation in that scenario. So maybe we can come to terms with the inevitable aging of the body. But what about aging of the mind? You know, minds are subject to aging too. You know, what if, what do we, what do, we do then? You know, we might be able to see how our practice and mindfulness will serve us as we, as we address the natural flow of life, as we grow older, as we have times of sickness, as we approach the inevitability of the end of our life. And we can feel, oh yeah, I can see how this practice and, and mindfulness will, 
will support and serve me, but what if our ability to practice in that way starts to slip away? What if the mind starts to not function well? You know, I've, I've noticed changes in terms of my memory. If I don't write it down, forget it. It's not gonna stick there. I was, uh, along with my sister, my, we were very involved in looking after my parents uh, in the time leading up to the, their deaths. My parents both lived to almost 92 and they had been together for 70 years. Can you imagine? That's a long time just to breathe, let alone stay married to somebody. And they actually seem to like each other. <laughs> Kind of rare. One of my uh, friends had come to visit. A f- yeah. It's longer ago than I realize now, but some uh, a few years before they they died, they were still living in the house I grew up in. And one of my friends came to, to visit, um, and my parents were sitting on the couch holding hands, probably eighty eight or so, eighty nine. And uh, I didn't really, you know, they were just my parents. They did that kind of thing. But I, my friend was very touched by the fact that they were sitting there holding hands and that care that was there in their lives. But it wasn't easy towards the end. And my mother had some kind of dementia, where uh, really a lot of confusion at times, very hard on my father. And, um, you know, her short-term memory was, it had fallen away. <laughs> so we'd have the same conversations over and over and it was not easy. And you know, I take after my mom. Everyone says, you're the most like her. Which is, I think is great because my mom was a fine being. But you know, it could be in store for me. I don't know, these things may be hereditary. And there's so much fear about loss, these kinds of losses, our mental abilities. We tend to fear that I think more than we fear uh, the decline of the physical body. There was a, a very, a very beloved monk. He was a Cambodian monk named uh, Mahagosananda. I know many of you have heard of him or heard me speak about him. He was the uh, Sangha Raja, the king of the Sangha in Cambodia. It was sort of a, an honorary title. He was very active in um, bringing attention to landmines and uh, these horrible devices in wartime and there were many many of them left in the ground in Cambodia and horrible things that happened to uh, people who would step on these things by accident and he would lead these marches through Cambodia to bring attention to this uh, the use of these terrible devices in in these wars and he was nominated four times for the Nobel Peace Prize I think he should have won it four times and there's a beautiful photograph I love. It's at the, um, I've seen it at, at the Spirit Rock Meditation Center. They have kind of a gratitude hut. And there's a, a photograph of Mahagosananda and His Holiness the Dalai Lama. And they're bowing uh, each to the other. And they're each, they're bent over double. Each one is trying to get lower, <laughs> trying to show the greater respect. And uh, 
Mahagosananda, in his uh, later years, he lived in a small monastery not far from here, here in Massachusetts. And I used to have occasion, because I've been around here in various capacities on staff early on, and um, as a, anyway, I've been around here a lot, and I used to go visit him sometimes just to pay respects. And he didn't know, know me, but, um, but I, I love to go and just pay respects and uh, say hello to him. And, and he, and his, before his death, he had, um, I believe they had been diagnosed as Alzheimer's disease, but very, uh, very confused, uh, lost a lot of mental capacities, a lot of confusion in some ways. But um, I remember one of the last times I saw him, I had gone there and one of the younger uh, monks who was there, I said, is, is, uh, is Mahagosananda, is Venerable uh, Mahagosananda around? And they said, yes, he's in his room. You can go and say hello and, and pay respects. So I went into his room and, and he, um, he started taking things, a bar of soap and uh, um, some other things. He started giving me presents. And um, his, his, the power of being in his presence at that time was so, um, it was just like being bathed in love and light. And he didn't even speak. He wasn't speaking anymore by then. But it was just like a field of, of metta in that room. I read once a story about uh, a very uh, beloved uh, saint, uh, teacher, they use the word saint in India, um, Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj, he's a wonderful teacher. There's a, a wonderful book called I Am That, um, that is a collection of uh, teachings and sayings and conversations that people had with him. And he lived and taught in Mumbai in Bombay till he was quite elderly. And at some point when he was in his 80s, someone went to see him and they, um, they said, uh, what's it like to be an old yogi? And he said, oh, I just watch senility come in. I see the memory decompose on an almost daily basis. And he just started roaring with laughter. <laughs> it was not a problem. And when I think of that story or think of Mahagosananda, and I think maybe there's, there's a pointing to some capacity or some aspect of the mind or of awareness that is somehow larger or beyond the, the thinking mind and those kinds of cognitive processes that may, may have declined in these, in, in these situations, may decline in all of us. Some part that can just see the whole thing happen and maybe even roar, maybe smile at it maybe roar with laughter, like Srini Sargadatta. This capacity to just watch it happen. And I think, you know, we get a sense of this possibility, each of us in our meditation practice, because there's some quality of awareness that can see the arising and passing of thoughts, that can even be aware of the arising and passing of consciousness itself. What is it that could know that? 
You know, there's some aspect of awareness that maybe is deeper or beyond the thinking mind. Certainly we can see that. We've all seen that in some way, touched that. And I think we connect more and more intimately with this quality of this awareness that is not affected by anything in the same way that we've said and we've all seen that there's a quality of the knowing mind of awareness that's not touched by what's happening there. Like the sky or open space. Nothing sticks to it. Nothing can stain that. Nothing can touch that. Maybe illness, aging, illness and death, this process, this natural process, the death of the body can do its thing and there's some aspect of this awareness that's not gonna be disturbed by that or that possibility I think is there and it's real. Reminds me of a story uh, that was told of the, the death of the 16th Karmapa, a very famous Tibetan uh, Lama and teacher, and he was uh, he traveled a lot around the world and spent a lot of time here in the United States. And he was somewhere in or near Chicago, I believe, at the time of his death. And he had he was quite ill then. He had a bad disease. And um, people the people who wrote about that time said that you know the doctors and nurses everyone liked to hang out in the room with him just to be around him. And at one point, very close to his death. You know, people were there and a lot of his uh, students and people who loved him and, and they were a lot of sadness. And he at some point said to them, don't worry, nothing happens. Don't worry, nothing happens. The body is just nature, it's just doing its thing. It's just a part of nature. So I'd like to end uh, tonight with a poem. This is uh, from Thich Nhat Hanh. It's called The Contemplation of No Coming, No Going. This body is not me. I am not limited by this body. I am life without boundaries. I have never been born and I have never died. Look at the ocean and the sky filled with stars, manifestations from my wondrous true mind. Since before time I have been free, birth and death are only doors through which we pass, sacred thresholds on our journey. Birth and death are a game of hide and seek. So laugh with me, hold my hand. Let us say goodbye, say goodbye to meet again soon. We meet today, we will meet tomorrow, we will meet at the source every moment. We meet each other in all forms of life. So we can sit quietly now and let this, let this reflection I offered this evening, we'll let that just drift away let it go, let everything go for a few minutes.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.